I'm looking at a painting, one of many depicting the storming of Badajoz, that imposing Spanish city with huge walls that defends the southern route between Spain and Portugal. This image has really caught my eye. In it, a line of redcoats struggles towards the top of the breach, climbing and crawling up the debris that slopes upwards into the thick, swirling smoke at the top. Dead and wounded men litter the narrow pathway. French soldiers like shadowy apparitions line the top of the breach. Muskets drawn. Near the bottom of the painting, an officer raises his left hand, gesturing for the men behind him to follow. A quick Google search reveals that this is Lieutenant Colonel MacLeod leading the 43rd Light Infantry. He, like many of his men, was killed during the assault. It's a powerful and atmospheric image. The storming of Badajoz during the Third British Siege is brutal and gruesome. It's the battle that triggered my initial interest in learning about the Peninsula War. Reading the novel Sharp's Company, I became fascinated by the horror of the fight in the breaches and then shocked by the tales of the horrific sack of the city that followed. I've been really looking forward to recording this episode of the Redcoat History Podcast. I just hope that I can do justice to this incredible story. Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast and YouTube channel. This is the place for history geeks and people who love to learn about the great battles of the British Army. If you aren't already subscribed then please do so and also share this episode with anybody that you think might be interested. After all it's up to us to keep the history of our great nation alive and to make sure that the younger generations learn about the brave men and women who came before us. In the last episode, we took a deep dive into the Battle of Albuera in May 1811. That was a brutal meat grinder of a battle that saw a number of British units suffer well over 50% casualties. If you haven't listened to that yet, then I highly recommend going back and doing so. Today, I'm trying to cover a lot of ground. There's nearly a year between the Battle of Albuera and the final storming of Badajoz on the night of the 6th of April 1812. So let's quickly try and recap. After Albuera, Marshal William Carr Beresford's battered army limped back to Badajoz to resume the siege. After all, stopping the city's relief by Marshal Salt was the whole point of the battle at Albuera. On the 19th of May, Wellington himself arrived from northern Portugal to take command of this new operation, one that we now think of as the second siege of Badajoz. The first siege, hampered by poor logistics and the lack of a siege train, had achieved very little. The second attempt was also a failure. You have to remember that the British Army at this point was very inexperienced in siege warfare. There was a shortage of heavy guns and trained engineers, both of which were vital for a siege to be successful. In fact, most of the artillery available at Badajoz were ancient guns taken from the Portuguese fort at Elvas. Made of copper, the metal began to warp from constant use. Eventually they did batter a breach in the wall and it was considered practicable. In other words, it was felt that the men would be capable of clambering up the fallen debris and successfully pushing through the hole made by the guns. But sadly, the assaults were a failure, despite incredible bravery from the attacking redcoats. Wellington, realising that his plan and his second attempt to take the city had failed, and that two French armies, those of Marshal Sultan Marmont, were gathering to relieve Badajoz, was left with little choice but to break off the siege and withdraw to safety. 
The second siege had been another costly failure, and Badajoz, one of the keys to Spain, remained in French hands, limiting any plan Wellington had had to cross the border that year and take the war to the enemy. By the way, I know that the podcast has brushed over the first and second sieges rather quickly, but they will be covered properly in my next book, The Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsular War, Volume 2, Rolls Off the Tongue, which will be out later this year. If you sign up to my mailing list over at redcoathistory.com, I'll keep you posted on the release of that book, as well as new podcasts. Anyway, back to our story, and with Badajoz proving too tough a nut to crack, Wellington decided to focus his energy on capturing the northern border city of Ciudad Rodrigo. Like Badajoz, it was a key that needed to be turned before his army could advance further into Spain. His first move was to organise his siege train. As early as May 1811, he gave orders for the train, which was on board ships in Lisbon, to move north towards Porto. It was a huge logistical task, involving large numbers of boats and bullock carts. It took months to get everything into position, a fact that shows why it was unrealistic to think that sieges of large, well-defended fortresses could be organised and managed quickly. It didn't help that Portuguese roads were generally very bad and incapable of bearing such heavy loads. Preparations for the siege of Ciudad Rodrigo went well. Spanish guerrillas helped to keep the French army strung out and nervous. On the 15th of October, they even managed to approach the walls of the city, capture all of its cattle and the French governor. Quite an impressive feat. At the start of January 1812 then, Wellington was ready to move decisively against Ciudad Rodrigo. In freezing weather, the men dug trenches, bringing them closer to the walls. Siege warfare of this era was not unlike the battlefields of the First World War. The soldiers were forced to dig trenches under heavy artillery and musket fire. It was terrifying and back-breaking work, very unpopular with the troops, who much preferred a stand-up fight in an open field. Captain William Grattan, of the 88th Regiment of Foot, the Connaught Rangers and a regular on this programme, recalled, Every exertion was made to forward the works, so fully were all impressed with its necessity. But notwithstanding the animated exertions of the engineers and the ready cooperation of the infantry, their progress was at times unavoidably slower than was anticipated. In some instances the soil was unfavourable. It was next to an impossibility to make head against it. Instead of clay or gravel we frequently met with a vein of rock, and invariably when this occurred our losses were severe. For the pickaxes coming into contact with the stone caused a fire, he means a spark, to issue that plainly told the enemy where we were. And as a matter of course, they redoubled their efforts on these points. End quote. He was Irish, but I'm not doing an accent. The much improved British artillery, which were now all modern iron guns, began to chip away at the city's walls. And by the 19th of January, there were two breaches big enough to be attacked. Crawford's Light Division and Picton's 3rd Division, both elite units, were tasked with the final assault. George Simmons was an officer of the 95th, part of the Light Division, the Rifles, and he wrote in his diary, The 3rd Division moved to attack the right breach and the Light Division the left, or smaller breach. The forlorn hope and storming parties moved on at about 7 o'clock in the evening, and the head of the column followed close behind. A tremendous fire was opened upon us, and as our column was entering the ditch, a magazine on the ramparts by the large breach blew up and ignited a number of live shells, which also exploded and paid no sort of difference to friend or foe. The night was brilliantly illuminated for some moments, and everything was made visible. <laughs> 
Then, as suddenly came utter darkness, except for the flashes from the cannon and muskets, which threw a momentary glare around us. End quote. The third division, caught by the massive explosion at the large breach, suffered dreadfully and were stunned, their attack temporarily grinding to a halt. The light division, meanwhile, had managed to force the smaller breach, but not without their own tragedy, for their commander, Major General Robert Black Bob Crawford, was shot directing the attack. A musket ball shattered his ribs before passing through his lung and lodging in his spine. He died of his injuries four days later. I guess some of the troops would have had very mixed feelings about the death of General Crawford or Crawford. He was a very strict disciplinarian. Doesn't come across that favourably, I don't think, reading back. But he was a very solid general. Wellington trusted him a lot. And the men trusted him that despite his harsh attitude towards them, he did get the job done. The French, pushed back from the breaches, were soon forced to surrender. But the British soldiers then decided to sack the town and a brutal night of drunken disorder followed. Captain Jonathan Leach, another officer with the 95th Rifles, they really liked writing biographies, said, When the town is stormed, it is inevitable that excesses will be, as ever have been, committed by the assailants, more particularly if it takes place at night. It affords a favourable opportunity for the loose and dissolute characters which are to be found in all armies to indulge in every diabolical propensity. This was a case to a certain extent on the night in question. No one will deny. But at the same time, I feel convinced that no town ever taken by assault ever did or ever will suffer less than Rodrigo. It is true that soldiers of all regiments got drunk, plundered and made great noise and confusion in the streets and houses, in spite of every exertion on the part of the officers to prevent it. But bad and revolting as such scenes are, I never heard that either the French garrison, when it had once surrendered, nor any inhabitants, suffered personal indignities or cruelty from the troops. Now, I don't know if that's 100% true or not, but he was there. This night of drunken over-exuberance and collapsing discipline was a worrying taste of what was to come following the capture of Badajoz. We'll get to that. The capture of Theodad or Ciudad Rodrigo had been an excellent example of what could be achieved by Wellington and his men, when they had the correct artillery and engineering support. It was carried out with a degree of professionalism and speed previously unknown in the Peninsular Army. But that army must now turn its attention to another walled city, this one much stronger and more complicated to assault. It was time to return to Badajoz and secure the Spanish-Portuguese border once and for all. One by one, Wellington's divisions now began their journey south. Grattan recalls the mood of the men. The soldiers were full of ardour. They anxiously counted the hours as they passed. And when at length on the 8th of March the order arrived for the advance of the army to Alem Tejo, their joy was indescribable. Badajoz had ever been looked upon by them as unfriendly to our troops, and they contemplated with delight the prospect of having it in their power. By March, the divisions were concentrated close to Elvas, the Portuguese city just across the border, as you'll recall. And on the 16th, the troops began to cross the Guadiana River and commence the investment of the city. But there was one more piece of bad news for the British. Due to the terrible state of Portugal's roads, they were unable to move the siege train down in time from Ciudad Rodrigo. Instead, they had to start from scratch, and like in earlier sieges, pulled together what guns they could beg, borrow and steal. They had 16 good iron 24-pounders which had recently arrived from England. 
Wellington then asked the Navy to help with more heavy caliber guns, but when these guns arrived they proved to be poor quality Russian pieces with rusty ammunition. For a siege, of course, the accuracy of the guns is really important because you need to keep striking at the same spot on the wall over and over again. As historian Mark Thompson points out in his great book Wellington's Engineers, the lack of guns seems to suggest that Wellington did not have a really solid plan for the assault on Badajoz. Maybe even the decision to besiege it came at the last minute. After all, he'd started preparations for the siege at Ciudad Rodrigo nearly a year before. And yet here he was trying to gather last-minute supplies in front of Badajoz. I think before we dive into our coverage of the siege, let me start by trying to describe the city and its defences. If you're listening to the audio-only version, then it may be useful for you to view the video on my YouTube channel or to visit redcoathistory.com where I've added a map of the city. Badajoz was a large fortified town sitting on the south bank of the broad Guadiana River. Its walls were 30 feet high and strong with a large Moorish castle dominating the northeast angle of the defences. The city also had a number of outer works beyond the main wall. These included Fort Pardaleras on the heights to the southwest, Fort Picarina on the southeast, and Fort San Cristobal across the Guadiana River north of the castle. The garrison was strong, around 5,000 men, under the command of General Philippon, who was a resourceful and courageous officer who had come up from the ranks. Since the unsuccessful second siege the previous year, the French garrison had considerably improved the defences, they had mounted many more guns on the castle ramparts. The Rivias stream on the eastern edge of the city had been dammed, flooding the area. And on the west of the city, they had built three triangular earth fortifications known as ravelins, under which they had also buried explosive mines. Wellington and his engineers really had their work cut out. For a good description of their options, <laughs> I had a left field this one, but I thought I'd turn to good old Major Hogan, the exploring officer from the Sharp novels. The book Sharp's Company by Bernard Cornwall may be only a novel, but I think this little exchange sums up the difficulties faced by the British. Here we go. Hogan took Sharp's elbow and turned him so they were both looking eastwards along the river towards the city. Do you know what it is like, Richard? It's bloody impossible. He pointed to the great stone bridge that carried the road to the city. We can't attack there. Anyone trying to cross that bridge will be shredded. So, try the east wall. Well, they've dammed the stream and it is one bloody great lake. We'd need a navy to cross that unless we can blow up the dam and they've built a fort to stop us doing that. There's the castle, of course. <laughs> Hogan's word were, words were urgent, almost bitter. If you feel like climbing a hundred feet of rock and then scaling a thirtieth foot wall all the time dodging grape shot he pointed again so there is the west wall looks easy enough doesn't it it did not look easy even at four miles sharp could see the huge bastions jutting like miniature castles that protected the wall hogan's accent was becoming more pronounced as it always did when he spoke with passion aye it looks too easy they want us to attack there why hmm. My guess is that it's mined. There's more powder there than Guy Fawkes ever dreamed of. He was really angry now, seeing the problems with his engineer's eye, turning the problems into blood. That leaves the south wall. We have to take at least one outlying fort, perhaps two, and then get through the walls. Do you know how thick they are? That wall, Richard, is big. Big! You could put all of Ciudad Rodrigo's wall in that ditch and you wouldn't even see it. Don't you understand? It's a killer. I tell you, Richard, I don't know if we can get through a breach. Sharp stared at the great fortress in the slanting, hissing rain. 
We'll have to, he said. And do you know how, said Hogan, by throwing so many poor bastards into the fight that the French simply can't kill them all. It's the only way, and I don't like it. Rain, rain and mud. On the night of the 17th of March, the wet and shivering British soldiers began digging the trenches which were known as parallels that would allow them to get within cannon shot of the walls. Grattan describes the event. The evening of the 17th of March had scarcely closed when 3,000 men broke ground before La Picarina. That's the fort on the outside of the main wall, southeast of the city, if you remember, at a distance of 150 yards. The night was unusually dark, the wind was high, and the rain fell in torrents, all of which favoured the enterprise. The soldiers, accustomed to fatigues and knowing by experience, if for nothing but their own safety, the necessity of getting on rapidly with their work, exerted themselves to the utmost. And when the grey dawn of morning made its appearance, the enemy beheld with surprise, through the mist that surrounded them, the first parallel of our work completed. The different alarm bells in the town rang a loud peal, and in less than half an hour a tremendous cannonade was opened upon us. End quote. I also want to share one other story with you from the beginning of the siege, as I think it, it tells us a lot about the, the real horror of this type of warfare. It's from Rifleman Costello again of the 95th. The first night of our arrival we commenced laying siege by breaking ground within three or four hundred yards of the town. We lost a man named Brooks whose death was connected with a very singular circumstance. Brooks, several days before his death, dreamt he saw a body without a head. This apparition appeared three or four nights successively in his dreams. Some days after we had taken one of the forts from our enemy, our battalion was relieved in the trenches. On this occasion, as was very customary with some of us, Brooks, another man named Tracy and myself, jumped out of the trench exposing ourselves to fire from the town while we ran to the next parallel. In executing this feat, I was a little ahead of my comrades when I heard the rush of a cannonball and feeling my jacket splashed by something. As soon as I jumped into the next parallel or trench, I turned around and beheld the body of Brooks headless, which actually stood quivering with life for a few seconds before it fell. His dream, poor fellow, had singularly augured is that how you say it? the conclusion of his own career. The shot had smashed and carried away the whole of his head, bespattering my jacket with the brains, while Tracy was materially injured by having a splinter of the skull driven, driven deep through the skin of his ear. But anyway, let's move on as there will be plenty more stories of horror in the rest of this episode, I can assure you. On the 25th of March, with the weather finally beginning to improve, the British guns were now in place and able to commence the bombardments of the fort. That same night, Wellington ordered Fort Picarina to be assaulted. Fort Picarina was essentially a, a detached bastion defended by 300 men with seven light guns. It had ditches in its front and its ramparts were protected by sharp stakes. At the rear was a triple row of palisades. The fort's capture would be an important step in Wellington's plan to take the city. Grattan, our favourite author, picks up the story. At half past seven o'clock, the storming party, consisting of 15 officers and 500 privates, stood to their arms. General Kempt, who commanded in the, commanded in the trenches, explained to them the duty they had to perform. 
He did so in his usual clear manner and everyone knew what part he was to fill, fulfill. The great cathedral bell of the city at length toiled the hour of eight and its last sounds had scarcely died away when the signal from the battery summoned the men to their perilous task. The three detachments sprang out of the works at the same time and ran forward to the glasses. 100 men fell before they even reached the outer work, but the rest, undismayed by the loss and unshaken in their purpose, threw themselves into the ditch or against the palisades at the gorge. The sappers, armed with axes and crowbars, attempted to cut away or force down this defence, but the palisades were of such thickness and so firmly placed in the ground that before any impression could be made, nearly all the men who had crowded to this point were struck dead. The time was passing rapidly and had been awfully occupied by the enemy, while as yet our troops had not made any progress that would warrant a hope of success. More than two-thirds of the officers and privates were killed or wounded. It was really a desperate situation and it looked like the assault was about to fail miserably. General Kempt, running out of options, threw his last remaining reserves into the attack. And finally, through applying pressure at multiple points simultaneously, the French defenders began to give way. Grattan, again, says that Never from the commencement of the war until its termination was there a more gallant exploit than the storming of this outwork. Big words, that was a guy who was at a lot of major battles. From the captured fort, the British trenches now began to extend and new artillery batteries were installed closer to the city walls. Slowly but surely, the artillery chipped away at the defences, until three breaches were made. As always, time was against Wellington. He needed to storm the city before Marshal Soult could try and relieve it again. On the 6th of April 1812, the order was given to attack. The plan was for a number of simultaneous assaults to be launched at 10pm. The 4th and Light Divisions would attack the main breaches, when the breaches were carried, the light division was to wheel to the left, the fourth to the right, and to sweep along the neighbouring bastions on each side. Meanwhile, Picton's third division was to escalate the high walls of the castle. In other words, to try and climb up them using ladders. Picton's hope was that the castle was such a strong defensive position that the attempt may catch the defenders by surprise. It was a very risky assumption. A number of other smaller diversionary attacks were also planned. The lunette at San Roque was to be attacked. The Portuguese were to assault Fort Pardaleras, while one of the British brigades in Leif's 5th Division was to try and escalate the bastion of San Vicente. These attacks, though, were considered unlikely to succeed. Overall, nearly 20,000 men would be involved in the attack on the city. It was hoped that weight of numbers would be enough to ensure success. As soon as the daylight began to fade, the troops moved through the mist and took up their allocated positions. There was an air of grim determination, the men desperate to be rewarded for what had been an exhausting and deadly siege. Sergeant William Lawrence of the 40th Regiment of Foot gives a sense of the mindset of the men when he wrote, I will relate an engagement that myself, Pig Harding, and another of my comrades, George Bowden by name, entered into before we even started on our way bit of a funny accent, bear with me, of which the result showed what a blind one it was. Through being quartered at Badahoff after the Battle of Talavera, all three of us knew the town perfectly well, and so understood the position of most of the valuable shops. And hearing a report likewise that if we succeeded in taking the place, there was to be three hours plunder, 
We had planned to meet at a silversmith's shop that we knew about, poor pig even providing himself with a piece of wax candle to light as if needed. That shows that the men were already looking forward to robbing. As we move into the final assault, I think it's worth quoting some of the accounts at length to really understand the true horror. Rifleman Costello had volunteered for the Forlorn Hope of the Light Division. The Forlorn Hope were volunteers who would attack the breaches first and face the greatest danger. He wrote, The word was now given to the ladder party to move forward. We were accompanied at each side by two men with hatchets to cut down any obstacle that might oppose them. There were six of us supporting the ladder allotted to me. We had proceeded but a short distance when we heard the sound of voices on our right upon which we halted and supposing they might be enemies. I disengaged myself from the ladder and cocking my rifle prepared for action. Luckily we soon discovered our mistake as one of our party cried, Take care, tis the stormers of the 4th Division coming to join us. This proved to be the case. The brief alarm over we continued advancing towards the walls. The rifles as before keeping in front. We had to pass Fort San Roche, or San Roque, I'm not sure which he means, on our left near to the town. And as we approached it, the French sentry challenged. This was instantly followed by a shot from the fort and another from the walls of the town. A moment afterwards, a fireball was thrown out, which threw a bright red glare of light around us. And instantly, a volley of grape shot, canister and small arms poured in amongst us. At a distance of about 30 yards from the walls, three of the men carrying the ladder with me were shot dead in a breath, and its weight falling upon me I fell backward. The remainder of the stormers rushed up, regardless of my cries or those of the wounded men around me, for by this time our men were falling fast. Many in passing were shot and fell upon me, so that I was actually drenched in blood. At length, by a strong effort, I managed to extricate myself, in doing which I left my rifle behind me and, drawing my sword, rushed towards the breach. There I found four men putting a ladder down the ditch and, not daring to pause, fresh lights being still thrown out of the town with a continual discharge of musketry, I slid quickly down the ladder. But before I could recover my footing, was knocked down again by the bodies of men who were shot in attempting the descent. I, however, succeeded in extricating myself from underneath the dead and rushing forward to the right. To my surprise and fear, I found myself nearly up to my neck in water. Horrifying, isn't it? Until then, I was tolerably composed, but now all reflection left me, and diving through the water, being a good swimmer, I attempted to make it to the breach. In doing this, I lost my sword. Without rifle, sword, or any other weapon, I succeeded in clambering up a part of the breach and came near to a chevaux de frise, consisting of a piece of heavy timber studded with sword blades turning on an axis. But just before reaching it, I received a stroke on the breast, whether from a grenade or a stone or by the butt end of a musket, I cannot say. But down I rolled, senseless, and drenched with water and human gore. I could not have laid long in this plight, for when my senses had, in some measure, returned, I perceived our gallant fellows still rushing forward, each seeming to share a fate more deadly than my own. The fire continued in one horrible and incessant peal, as if the mouth of the infernal regions had opened to vomit forth destruction upon all of us. End quote. William Lawrence was also with a forlorn hope, that one of the 4th Division, and his plans for robbing the city's silver shop were soon abandoned. Here he is again. 
I was one of the latter party, for we did not feel inclined to trust the Portuguese as we did at Theodad Rodrigo. On our arriving at the breach, the French sentry on the wall cried out, Who comes there? Three times, or, or words to that effect in his own language. But on no answer being given, a shower of shot, canister and grape, together with fireballs, was hurled at random amongst us. Poor Pig received his death wound immediately, and my other accomplice Bowden became missing while I myself received two small slug shots in my left knee and a musket shot in my right side, which must have been mortal had it not been for my canteen, for the ball penetrated that and passed out, making two holes in it, and then entered my side slightly. Still I stuck to my ladder and got into the entrenchment. Numbers had by this time fallen, but the cry from our commanders being, Come on, my lads! We hastened to the breach, but there, to our great surprise and discouragement, we found a chevaux de frise had been fixed, and a deep entrenchment made from behind which the garrison opened a deadly fire on us. Vain attempts were made to remove this fearful obstacle, during which my left hand was dreadfully cut by one of the blades on the chevaux de frise, but finding no success in that quarter we were forced to retire for a time. We remained, however, in the breach until we were quite weary with our efforts to pass it. My wounds were still bleeding and I began to feel weak. My comrades persuaded me to go to the rear, but this proved a task of great difficulty, for on arriving at the ladders I found them filled with the dead and wounded, hanging, some by their feet, just as they had fallen. I hove down three lots of them, hearing the implorings of the wounded all the time, but on coming to the fourth I found it completely smothered with dead bodies, so I had to draw myself up over them as best as I could. When I arrived at the top, I almost wished myself back again, for there of the two I think was the worst sight, nothing but the dead and wounded, lying around, and the cries of the latter, mingled with the incessant firing from the enemy, being quite deafening. I was so weak myself that I could scarcely walk, so I crawled on my hands and knees till I got out of reach of the enemy's musketry. So the attacks against the main breaches were grinding to a bloody standstill. The French, expecting the attack here, had made the position almost impregnable. The breach was an obstacle course of upturned carts, broken boats, spikes hammered into wooden beams, and of course those awful chevaux de frise, and their spinning sword blades which both of the above accounts mention. To cap it all, the French had laid mines in the breaches, as the historian Charles Oman says, The light division descended into the ditch further to the left towards Santa Maria. Many men were already at the bottom, the rest crowded on the edge, where the French engineers fired the series of mines and powder barrels which had been laid in the ditch. They worked perfectly, and the result was appalling. The 500 volunteers who formed the advance of each division were almost all slain, scorched or disabled. Every one of the engineer officers set to guide the column was killed or wounded, and the want of direction caused by the absence of anyone who knew the topography of the breaches had the most serious effect during the rest of the storm. Of the light division officers with the, the advance, only two escaped unhurt. The assault against the main breaches was a bloody failure. Meanwhile, the third division, slightly ahead of schedule, began its attack on the castle. There was a solemn but confident mood amongst the men. They looked like pirates with their shirts unbuttoned, their trousers rolled up to the knee and their knapsacks left behind. Our old friend Grattan, of course, of the 88th Connaught Rangers, takes up the story. The division now moved forward in one solid mass. 
solid mass. Their advance was undisturbed until they reached the Riveas, the stream. But at this spot, some fireballs, which the enemy threw out, caused a great light, and the third division, 3,000 strong, was to be seen from the ramparts of the castle. Finding they were discovered, they raised a shout of defiance, which was responded to by the garrison. And in a moment afterwards, every gun that could be brought to bear against them was in action. But no way daunted by the havoc made in his ranks, Picton, who just then joined his soldiers, forded the Riveas knee-deep and soon gained the foot of the castle wall. And here he saw the work was, that was cut out for him. A host of French veterans crowned the wall, all armed in a manner as imposing as novel. Each man had beside him eight loaded firelocks while at intervals were pikes of an enormous length with crooks attached to them for the purpose of grappling with the ladders. The top of the wall was covered with rocks of ponderous size, only requiring a slight push to hurl them upon the heads of our soldiers, and there was a sufficiency of hand grenades and small shells at the disposal of the men that defended this point. Things didn't look promising. Picton was quickly wounded in the groin, and command devolved to his senior brigade commander, General Kempt. All was confusion and horror as the ladders were delayed, forcing the men to stand helpless under the walls while they were brought forward. When they did arrive, the men clambered up them, only for them to be pushed over or to break. All hopes depended on the last ladder. A private of the 45th Nottinghams was the first to scramble up it. He reached the parapet, but he was quickly shot and fell backwards, tumbling 30 feet to the ground. The next man, Corporal Michael Kelly, sprang over and shot the nearest defender. The British were in. The French commander, General Philippon, had not expected the attack on the castle, and so most of its defenders had been moved towards the main breaches. That mistake now became apparent as the British flooded over the walls. A gutter fight raged in the stairwells and many of the defenders were caught and bayoneted. By midnight, the fight for the castle was over, but the noise didn't abate as the men, many of them now becoming drunk, began rampaging through the castle, firing wildly and looking for booty amongst the mass of French provisions which had been gathered within its high walls. Meanwhile, the capture of the castle wasn't the only British success. The other diversionary attacks were now proving to be successful. The lunette at San Roque was captured and then, against all expectations, the 5th Division, attacking an hour behind schedule due to a mix-up with their ladders, managed to climb up them and capture the remote river bastion of San Vicente. From here, they battled their way along the walls until the French soldiers at the breaches suddenly found themselves under fire from the rear. They were forced to surrender. The fighting, amongst the most harrowing ever experienced by British troops, was now as good as over. They'd done it. Given the horror at the main breaches and the strength of the city walls, no one could have been happier to hear the news than Wellington, who had been fearing the worst. Shortly afterwards, he wrote to Lord Liverpool, the Secretary for War. He said, the capture of Badahoth affords an, a strong an instance of the gallantry, gallantry of our troops as has ever been displayed, but I greatly hope that I shall never again be the instrument of putting them to such a test as they were put to last night. I assure your lordship that it is quite impossible to carry fortified places by force without incurring grave loss and being exposed to the chance of failure. It was now that the next and most controversial phase of the night began. 
It's worth pointing out that siege warfare almost since the dawn of time had a widely accepted code of conduct. If the defenders refused to surrender and the fortress fell to a costly frontal assault, then the garrison could expect no quarter. As French Marshal Ney had told the Spanish when he himself was besieging Ciudad Rodrigo in 1810, Further resistance will force the Prince of Essling to treat you with all the rigour of the laws of war. You have to choose between honourable capitulation and the terrible vengeance of a victorious army. That just gives you a sense that both sides saw it this way. Anyway, as we saw from William Lawrence's account earlier, many of the British soldiers were really quite looking forward to a few hours of looting once the city had fallen. They felt it was their right and that it was justifiable. Rifleman Costello, who we last met in desperate straits at the main breach, had managed to survive the horror <laughs> and was now limping around the town bizarrely dragging a French prisoner in tow who had latched onto him as they both went looking for plunder. This is from his memoirs. We looked anxiously around for a house where we could obtain refreshment and if truth must be told a little money at the same time. For even wounded as I was I had made up my mind to be a gainer by our victory. At the first house we knocked at, no notice was taken of the summons. We fired a rifle at the keyhole which sent the door flying open. This indeed was our usual method of forcing locks. As soon as we entered the house we found a young Spanish woman crying bitterly and praying for mercy. She informed us she was the wife of a Frenchman and to the demand of my companion O'Brien for refreshment replied there was nothing but her poor self in the house. She however produced some spirits and chocolate, the latter of which being very hungry and faint I partook of with much relish. As the house looked poor we soon quitted it in quest of a better. Supported by O'Brien and the Frenchman we proceeded in the direction of the marketplace. It was a dark night and the confusion and uproar that prevailed in the town may be better imagined than described. The shouts and oaths of drunken soldiers in quest of more liquor, the reports of firearms and crashing in of doors, together with the appalling shrieks of hapless women, might have induced anyone to have believed himself in the regions of the damned. The next day, the situation had still not improved. Robert Blakeney, an officer of the 28th Regiment, we recalled, Oh, what scenes of horror did I witness there. They can never be effaced from my memory. There was no safety for women even in the churches, and any who interfered or offered resistance were sure to get shot. Every house presented a scene of plunder, debauchery and bloodshed committed with wanton cruelty on the persons of defenceless inhabitants by our soldiery, and in many instances I beheld the savages tear the rings from the ears of beautiful women who were their victims, and when the rings could not be immediately removed from their fingers with the hand, they tore them off with their teeth. Firing through the streets and at the windows was incessant, which made it excessively dangerous to move out. Men, women and children were shot in the streets for no other apparent reason than pastime. Every species of outrage was publicly committed in the houses, churches and streets, and in a manner so brutal that a faithful recital would be too indecent and too shocking to humanity. Not the slightest shadow of order or discipline was maintained. The officers durst not interfere. The infuriated soldiery resembled rather a pack of hellhounds vomited up from the internal regions of the extirpation, I don't know what that means, of mankind than what they were but 12 short hours previously, a well-organized, brave, disciplined and obedient British army. Absolutely grim reading, isn't it? The officers had completely lost control. 
many of the men in a drunken rage that would have made it incredibly dangerous for the officers to try and intervene. Despite that, though, there were instances of British soldiers attempting to stop their comrades from the worst of these excesses. And also there's one very famous story of an officer in the 95th, 95th again, called Harry Smith, who saved the life of a young Spanish lady and then married her a few days later. In later years, as he rose through the ranks, she followed him around the world. And there's now a very famous city in South Africa named after her, Lady Smith, Lady Smith, the scene of its own siege during the Second Anglo-Boer War. There is some debate as to how much was done to stop the sacking of the city. Even many of the officers felt that after such an awful and bloody assault, it was the men's right. It was only late in the day on the 7th that Wellington sent out the following general order. It is now full time that the plunder of Badahoth should cease. An officer and six steady NCOs will be sent from each regiment, British and Portuguese of the 3rd, 4th, 5th and Light Divisions into the town at 5am tomorrow morning to bring away any men still straggling there. Eventually, exhausted and hungover, the men slowly began to return to camp. As the historian and veteran William Napier said, the tumult rather subsided than was quelled. It was the end of a horrific 48 hours that saw the British Army at its best and at its worst. And so, on the third attempt, Badajoz was finally in British hands. Both the southern and northern routes into Spain were now op open, and Wellington was now able to start thinking offensively. The Peninsula War was moving into a new and exciting phase. Well guys, I hope you enjoyed that. Personally, I find the account of the storming and sacking of the city of Badajoz both fascinating and, and horrifying in equal measure. I always try not to judge the actions of the past by today's impossibly high and often disingenuous moral standards. But to be fair, even at the time, people were shocked by the behavior of a large number of the troops that night. It's a very serious blemish on the record of what is arguably Britain's greatest ever army, that that fought in the peninsula. Anyway, it's time to move on with our story, so please subscribe and also sign up for my monthly dispatch newsletter, which you can do by visiting redcoathistory.com slash newsletter. When you do so, you get two free ebooks, including the transcript of my interview with Mark Thompson, Marcus Berriford and Marcus Cribb from last month's episode about the Battle of Albuera. In the meantime, I'll be back next month with the next episode of the podcast, which, if all goes to plan, should be an interview with the one and only Gareth Glover to talk about the Battle of Salamanca. He's a real expert on the Battle of Waterloo and the Peninsula, so you don't want to miss that. I'm really excited for it. All right, guys, take care. I'll see you soon.